0: CEU Medieval Radio, Past Perfect, the talk show about medieval and early modern culture. Hello and welcome to Past Perfect, CEU Medieval Radio's show on medieval and early modern culture. My name is Anna Kinda, and I am here today with Martin Pierka, who is an advanced PhD student at CEU and also a research fellow at the Center of Medieval Studies in Prague. Martin is about to finish his dissertation about the perception and discourses on physical violence in 15th-century Bohemia. Hello, Martin. Nice of you to come and visit us.
1: It's my pleasure. Hello. Thanks for having me.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about your current research project? What are you dealing with and what are your sources? hmm
1: yeah, so I'm dealing with the so-called Taborite movement. And this is, well, to put it very briefly, who were the Taborites? They were the they were a radical wing of the Hussite movement. Most people might have heard of that. And um, they become, well, apocalyptically minded, and then they become revolutionary, which means basically that they see themselves as participating in apocalyptic events through violence, through revolutionary action. And what interests me especially is how, how does this transition happen from what we can call like pacifist, sort of escapist apocalyptic thought, which is actually the typical mode of thought in the Middle Ages, into what we can call like a revolutionary activist mode of apocalyptic thought because we don't really see this anywhere else in in, in history. So this is why the Taborites are so interesting for me. My sources, well, I'm especially approaching it from yeah you could say intellectual history perspective so i'm dealing with anything i can find but especially sermons theological debates and polemics letters uh, anything that sort of the hussite and then Taborite leaders uh, might have said to to inspire some kind of action from their followers so this is yeah briefly put this is my interest
0: Mm-hmm. I'm not very well versed in this area of, mm-hmm. of European history, so could you tell us a little bit about like, the context? What is happening in Bohemia at this time, and how can we imagine these Hussite mm-hmm. wars? Yeah,
1: that's a good question. Um, of course, the context is very complicated. So the Hussites begin, we probably heard of Jan Hus, begin as a reform movement in Bohemia, in Prague. So this is the time of the schism, a time when people are exactly uncertain of their own salvation, how to atta- attain salvation, which Pope, should we be? Should we follow? At some point, there is even three popes, as you know. Oh my! So people are asking themselves. Well, it becomes a very complicated question, and so there are some movements. Hussites are not unique to this. That begin to actually avoid the clerical church altogether and look exactly to the sources what they see as the sources of christianity that is scripture so the hussites begin as such a movement of course influenced from various thinkers abroad but begin to to measure let's say the clerical church around them based on the measurements of what they thought God meant the church to be based mm-hmm. on based on the so-called pre-constantinian church so the church of Christ and his first apostles and what they see is that the 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 church around them doesn't measure up they're simply i mean uh, yeah politics and and uh, religion are are combined and the clergy is is more interested in gaining wealth and power than they are Preaching the sermons to their to their flocks, and of course Prague is maybe a unique case because there are some studies done that uh, uh, an especially high number of priests existed proportionally in Prague, which was one of Europe's biggest cities at the time. So maybe the so-called sins of the clergy were especially visible to people, mm-hmm. and um, so it begins in the university. Charles University, this movement of reform, which is basically simplifying, simplifying the clergy, taking away their political and economic wealth,
2: mm-hmm.
1: basically to purify them so that they can focus on their main task at hand. Which is making sure that yeah that people are living according to the norms that are set in scripture. So this is the beginning of the of the what is called the Hussite movement. Mm-hmm. Um, Jan Hus. Of course, this gets into conflict with the church because actually this questions the very authority of the clerical hierarchy. And at some point, the Hussite leaders begin to consider actually the clerical hierarchy as the exact problem. Even the Pope, who they mm. they begin to call as the highest Antichrist, because after all, he is the the leader of the entire movement away from scriptural norms he is the the head of this uh, sort of perversion in history that's the way they see it so he is called to Constance in 1414 to um, well both sides think they're they're achieving something different because Hus thinks he's coming there to preach and to convert and to reform the church, while the council is simply wants to hear him defend himself against charges of heresy. Mm-hmm. So they have, of course, different objectives. He's thrown in jail shortly after he comes. And he's long story short, he's executed as a heretic. So this happens in 1415. The Taborites are still a few years away, but what we see happening in the meantime is... Well, he was immensely popular, even with the nobility. Mm-hmm. So the nobility and uh, the population sort of are outraged by, uh, by this execution and decide to defend themselves against further persecutions. Now it gets very complicated because the Hussite, let's say, movement becomes so big that actually there are and it, it comes to actually be spread over the whole country, that it's impossible to maintain a sort of unified front. Yes. So there you have sort of more moderate wings, sort of the university where it all started, the nobles, and you have more radical wings with it, which begin in the countryside. And the Taborites come out of this, this sort of more radical approach, which really actually sees, which really wants to, Go to a return to the most simplistic theology and the most simplistic liturgy. They come into conflict with the sort of moderates, so on and so forth, until 1419, and this is when there is the Prague Defenstration, when radical Hussites in Prague depose the town council, mm-hmm. actually throwing them out the windows. Oh, I see. Um, This is seen as a revolutionary act. The king dies. And then these Taborite groups in the countryside start meeting. And they increasingly see events around them as apocalyptically charged. So Mm -hmm. they begin to interpret their own persecution or their own uh, liminal sort of status as as a sign of the end times that are coming. And this this is the birth of the Taborite movement. They begin to meet on hilltops which they which they flee to sort of because they really expect the end times to come very soon. And then something happens. The the predicted time of the end, nothing nothing transpires at that time of like Mm-hmm. Christ doesn't come to, to cleanse the world. So they see themselves actually as necessary participants in this sort of world cleansing, this apocalyptic oh, I see. Uh, renewal.
0: So if Christ is not doing it, that they should start doing it.
1: Yeah, it's not put in so many terms, but they see themselves exactly as... As the angels, the heavenly army mm-hmm. that has to that has to in a way participate. And um,
0: um, how many people are we talking about? So is this like a huge percent of the population, or
1: this begins as thousands of people? We don't have very reliable numbers. I think we have chronicles that say that the first mm-hmm. the first Taborite meetings are ten thousand people. That's um, a lot. I mean, they they eventually come to to form this town, this fortified town of Tabor. So you can imagine it as the size of a town. Mm -hmm. But maybe their influence is broader than this because they become very successfully militarized and are very important for the Hussites in general in what comes to be known as the Hussite Wars because Mm -hmm. they're sort of the military backbone of the Hussites. Mm-hmm. So the Taborites stay stay kind of relevant in this way, even though there's always polemics within the, the broader Hussite movement mm-hmm. over issues of, of liturgy and uh, over theology and so on, which then ends in the, the split of the movement at the end of the Hussite wars and, well, the defeat of the Taborites. And the moderate Hussites kind of go back into the church nominally, but are sort of a church within a church. And this mm-hmm. is an extremely complicated case, which exists then into, into the 17th century. So for 200 years, there is this church within a church in Bohemia, and mm-hmm. um, it's unresolved until the Battle of White Mountain in uh, the Thirty Years' War. So it's a long explanation, sorry, but uh, that's the context, let's say. <laughs>
0: Thank you. You've you've given a very thorough explanation. Okay, then what is your perspective in this, and what is your main subject, so to say?
1: Uh, so, as I said, there's there's this uh, transition that happens in this early part of the Taborite meetings, when exactly the sort of what I call this passive idea of apocalyptic thought, which is that sort of the gods elect have to hide away somewhere and wait for uh, divine forces to cleanse the world. And then there's this transition which takes place where um, suddenly the Taborites see themselves as agents that have to actually assist in this or somehow participate in this world cleansing. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting to me exactly is First of all, I don't think you see this anywhere else in Europe before that, in the West. So this is kind of something that uh, bears explanation, that requires explanation. We can't take for granted why this would happen. So this is the question of my project, is how could this... What did they think they were doing, actually? Uh, And how did this novelty come about?
0: And what do you think they were doing?
1: Well, I just... Gave a talk on this in a, in a conference, but um, very broadly speaking, I think we have to take into consideration not only the apocalyptic background, but also what is called in literature or the realist or let's say Neoplatonic background, which I think is nothing new. I'm not I'm not presenting that anything new that the Hussites were influenced by Neoplatonic thought. That's already well known, but the fact that it sort of came out of the university circle and it was translated into, let's say, vulgarized into, into Christian terminology and vocabulary, which then, um, which then sort of combined with the apocalyptic narrative. So I think what's, in, what's important um, in the Neoplatonic sort of cosmology I don't want to get too technical, so stop me if...
0: Yeah, in, in layman's Lehman, terms, yeah. how could you explain this? Yeah,
1: um, basically, the idea is that the human being has to actualize his potential. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is behind, let's say, the broader, what's bro- more broadly called medieval humanism. Mm-hmm. That the human being is not simply s- a set a set substance, let's say, but has to actualize his potential. And in this context uh, of the the Taborites, what they're seen as actualizing is is actually their faith. Mm -hmm. Their faith has to be something that is displayed. It Mm -hmm. has to be performed, you know, if you want. It can't be taken for granted. And over time, this performative dimension, which is very clear for what the clergy have to do to perform, it's very clear what the king has to do to perform. He has to sort of police the society in a way, cleanse it from from sin. But it's not clear at all what the laity should do to to perform. So there's on the one hand a very uh, aggressive rhetoric from the Hussites who say that you have to, you know, every Christian has to has to resist the antichrist, but it's never clear what this means in practical terms to to a layman who is supposed to be according to like medieval sort of stereotypical political thought is supposed to be just a, a passive aid, a passive yes. non-agent, right? Yes. And at some point, I think that this combines with the urgency of apocalyptic thought, which somehow is creates an extreme anxiety within lay people that I have to act. It's not clear to me how I should act, but if I don't do something, then then i will be sort of labeled amongst the damned because i have to perform my mm-hmm. my my faith and i think let's just to simplify things i think that this is behind exactly this this revolutionary inspiration mm-hmm. to get more i would have to go into finer detail but this is the the basic of it basics
0: mm-hmm. Okay. My question regarding this, as a historian, so what is the methodology you use to uncover mm. these thought processes? That's
1: a, yeah, that's a very good question, because actually the, the radical Hussites and Taborites are not at all explicit about their sources. So you cannot simply say, ah, he's, this is citing the Timaeus, the Plato, and uh, therefore... They very rarely cite anything other than the Bible, sometimes a couple of non-biblical prophecies, but that's about it. So you have to really do sort of an intellectual history and a discourse analysis to find, to in a way trace, to trace these ideas and where they come from. And this is difficult, but it can be done. And I think it's important that it's done because in this way you can sort of uncover you know, these translated discourses that mm-hmm. are translated from, let's say, high academic thought through uh, sermons into popular sort of uh, vulgar terms or Christian terms that would be sensible to, to people. Mm-hmm. So, so the method is very difficult, and it often takes you down black alleys that you you think you ah you think you've caught a thread, and this leads to a philosopher that you kind of remember somewhere from from some text, and actually no, it it's impossible. So you you are often just poking in the dark, looking for something, and um, and it's speculative in this way. You don't have a, it's not a very positivist approach or, or result that you will find so so you are looking for
0: like these intertextual clues and mm. are you using any digital methods for example for that uh, are I'm, you marking your texts in a certain way
1: i am so primitive that i'm not <laughs>
0: how do you deal uh, with these well illusions and
1: yeah it's it's always a matter of experimentation i don't know I don't I'm sure I haven't found the perfect way to do it I take lots of notes and I use when I find a phrase that sticks out to me I use Google and search engines and sometimes yeah databases of, of certain digitized sources mm-hmm. but I'm not that familiar with these digital methods to be honest mm-hmm. um, about, uh, and I'm not sure if they're really that up to the task of looking for shared quotations in manuscript study, in manuscripts, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully, one day.
0: Are you working directly with manuscripts or are you working with critical editions? Um,
1: both, and uh-huh. non critical, so early prints, um, mm-hmm. some manuscripts, but mostly, I must admit, with published editions. Of course, there's a lot there's a lot that i could still go through and at some point it would i would like to but as a phd project it's already kind of grown <laughs> to maybe the proportion the maximum propor- size that i can handle
0: Understandable. So this is your PhD project, and is this the same thing that you are working on in the Center for Medieval Studies?
1: Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. In the Center for Medieval Studies in Prague, my project is incorporated in the larger project, an EXPRO project funded by the Czech Grants Agency. And it's about conflicts in Central Europe in Roughly the end of the Middle Ages, maybe beginning of early modern period. So from Charles the Fourth until the early sixteenth um, century, and here you have um, strifes between, uh, strife between nobles, between kings, dynasties. Mm-hmm. Of course, you have people like Sigismund and Emperor, Sigismund and Charles, who are emperors. And um, so they have conflicts everywhere from Switzerland in the west to Hungary and the Ottomans in the east and uh, the Italians, city-states, and then the Teutonic order in the north. So this is sort of this very large geographical unit that the project that is sort of represented by individual projects in the, in the overall scheme and f- also from different viewpoints, so from economic history, diplomatics, things like what I'm doing, sort of intellectual history, and so it's interdisciplinary in this way, and even literature studies and chronicles, etc. Uh-huh.
0: Thank you. Now we will take a short break and we will be right back. Welcome back. This is the second part of our interview with Martin Piechel. Thanks for coming and being with us. I would like to ask a little bit about the Taborite movement that you have laid out. And were there any important figures that you could tell us a little bit about uh, whose, whose influence was noticeable in this line of thinking in the Taborite movement?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question, but unfortunately we don't have a very good answer because from the Taborites themselves, we have very few actually sources. So we know that they had, um, internally they had some leaders. The best known of them is Mikulash and uh, who was their bishop, who they elected. Um, And we do have some sources from him. But for this very early period that I'm interested in about, let's say, the most revolutionary, um, most radical, they were more or less liquidated in the first couple of years of the the existence of the movement. So we have a couple of letters from a a so-called Martin Huska, who was uh, apparently one of the main figures in bringing this movement to uh, its revolutionary stage also a so-called Jan Čapek, who the only source that we have, I think, is a recording from a hostile sort of uh, a re-recording of a pamphlet from a hostile observer. So it's always a question how to treat these kind of sources, how reliable they might be. But um, let's say for my research, when I'm looking up sort of, when I'm looking at the the background of the Taborite movement, of course, there are influential figures that you can, that we have good sources for. Um, of course, the most central might be Jan Hus himself, who, well, I already explained uh, who he was, um, and he was most important in sort of popularizing this reform message, so taking it out of the university context and sort of translating it into into not only vulgar terms but literally translating it into Czech preaching in Czech this is something that was quite um, was quite restrained and quite still unique another thinker who i think doesn't get enough recognition still in in uh, historiography is a certain Jakubik of Stribro he's the most important uh, he's best known for the beginning of the so-called Eucharist communion.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so this is a theological novelty which the Hussites are known for about giving the bread and the wine in the uh, Eucharist, which up till then was, yeah, there's a long history behind it that it, it existed in the original uh, early church and then somehow in the Middle Ages for some reason or another it was forgotten and ignored and only the bread was given to the laity. uh uh-huh. So he renewed the practice of giving both kinds to the laity, which the council condemned as heretical, and so on. But I think his importance goes beyond this, in, especially in this sort of mystical, let's say, neoplatonic background. He's the one who mainly awakens previous Czechs, so-called realist thinkers, Matias Avyanov, and brings them into the Hussite sort of corpus of, of intellectual sources And this, I think, is very important later for the Taborites in, for example, imagining a body of the Antichrist or imagining a normative way of acting as anti-Christianity or versus Christianity. And so there's many ways that I think he's very important and he's kind of considered the father of the Taborites, even though he's definitely negligent father because he... How come? Because when the Taborites come to existence, he immediately rejects them and he rejects the, the violence. And I think this is one of the reasons why he is being sort of sidelined in maybe the the Hussite research or this specifically research on the Taborites. But I think that without him, you don't get the same Taborite movement or uh, he's much more of an apocalyptic thinker also than than Huss was. So these, these are some main figures that I would highlight. Mm
0: hmm. Thank you.
1: They are relevant for me, yeah.
0: So, we have previously talked about this violent part of the Hussite movement. Was there, I mean, you already mentioned it, that there was also a more moderate side. Was there a completely opposite pacifist side? And can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes, uh, this is an interesting development that actually... Exactly at the time when the Hussites become the most radical and some of them become the most violent, you actually have some thinkers who become complete pacifists, which even the moderate Hussites were not. Uh, Even Hus and Jakobek were not pacifists in any way. They believed in legitimate use of force but especially a figure of Petr Khelchitsky, who then becomes sort of revived in the post Hussite wars as the founder of the spiritual sort of founder of the unity of brethren, who take up this pacifist message and exactly reject any kind of violence, even coercion from the state. And he's been he's been some historians see him as the first pacifist thinker, which I don't know, is maybe debatable, but it's an interesting sort of opposite pole, opposite extreme to what I'm most interested in.
0: Mm-hmm. And did he have many followers? What uh, was his influence, and mm-hmm. what was this? At the time, pacifist?
1: that's a good question. At the time, he didn't have that much influence when he was when he started in the early Taborite days. It's only after, actually maybe also makes sense that it's after the Hussite Wars when population is also exhausted from, from more than a decade of warfare that um, also some radical thinkers revive him in a way and revive in a way that the Taborite message of simplistic liturgy, simplistic life and poverty, but uh, not combining it with any kind of revolutionary action. But his his influence, I think, it's fair to say is mostly in the second half of the century when when with the unity of of brethren and its various successors into early modernity
0: so can you tell us a little bit to make the story round can you tell us a little bit about how the hasid wars ended and what mm-hmm. was the fate of the taborites
1: uh, yeah that's that's good basically The revolution, the Hussite revolution, so-called, happens 1420, and there are crusades announced against them. So they have basically successfully taken a large part of the kingdom and its towns, and even a large portion of the nobility has sided with them. So uh, the Council of Constance and the church announce a crusade against them. And what's remarkable is actually that... And it's taken for granted that these trained soldiers, for example, Albigensian Crusades, were uh, basically slaughtering uh, the, the heretics. But in the Huss- Hussite Crusades, the Hussites are remarkably successful. And this is partially because of a new style of fighting. They introduce artillery into the offensive um, warfare. So they use these so-called Wagenburgen or uh, wagon forts, mm-hmm. which... Actually, Mm -hmm. no one knows how to deal with because this is a completely like new way of fighting.
0: So are these like siege towers?
1: No, they're like, if you imagine, just a normal wagon drawn by horses. And on the back, you have a cannon.
0: Wow. And (laughs) of
1: course, this is a mobile a yes. mobile artillery unit, then uh-huh. if it, it cannot be breached by horses or infantry. And at the same time, you're firing at them. And this, you have to realize at the time, has an en- enormous also psychological effect of being fired upon by artillery, which up until this point is mostly used only in defensive-like capabilities. So mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. guess most soldiers probably didn't ever see or he- see the effect of a cannon. And now you have this mobile sort of fortress, wow. uh, which can then sort of stand wagon next to wagon, and you can have people firing from behind it, and it creates complete chaos. Mm-hmm. So they're immensely successful against the First Crusade, Second Crusade, Third Crusade, Fourth Crusade, Fifth Crusade, and they, you know, this army of large parts of which is simply peasants with farming tools made into weapons, actually successfully. Is able to ward off professional soldiers and mercenaries, and this has an an immense effect on their self, also confidence. Yes, and suddenly these things that they that they said in the beginnings of the wars that they are the elect. Well, now it's obvious.
0: It makes sense. <laughs> it, uh, yeah. It's
1: obvious that God is on their side and that, you know, the few are able to conquer the many and the weak, the powerful, and so on. Until the church, well, a new council is called at Basel in the early 1430s. And it's clear that this has to be somehow dealt with because the military way is not going to work. So they invite the Hussites. Again, it's sort of like with Hus that... They are invited by the council in a way to defend themselves while they think that they're coming also to spread their message. So there are years actually of debates and polemics which happened between the council and they, they have the so-called Four Articles of Prague which all the Hussite parties agree on. This is basically making the church poor again. <laughs> so making it go back to its original a message of preaching free preaching of the gospel without restrictions from the hierarchy on what you can preach and when mm-hmm. the the chalice what i explained this utraquist communion and the punishment of sin this was i think especially a taborite article, the punishment of sin. So they debated on on these four articles, the, the scriptural arguments for them, etc. And finally, the council was quite smart because they saw that there was a division, which I, I kind of hinted at at the beginning, that there were these moderate Hussites and the, the more radical. And eventually the council saw this division and they said, okay, so what we can do is actually grant you the the most important of these articles, which was the challenge So the communion, which the Hussites saw as necessary for salvation. Actually, if you don't do this, there's no salvation. And maybe you drop the other ones. So eventually the moderate Hussites agreed to this, while the Taborites never did and so they split the movement in half in this way and effective end of the taborite military power comes in the battle of lipany when catholic forces unite with the moderate hussite forces against the taborites and finally the taborites are defeated they feel betrayed they still exist in tabor as a as a unit until for until the mid century but this is basically the end of the the hussite wars and they become the hussites become I think I, I said uh, already before they become a church within a church, mm-hmm. and this is uh, yeah a phenomenon that exists into into the 17th century. So this is this is brief history of the side Wars.
0: Thanks. I would like to ask a little bit about the afterlife of this apocalyptic thought because you are dealing with int- intellectual history. Mm-hmm. What did these thinkers? these thoughts have any influence after what has passed in did other apocalyptic movements start and can we trace any well, influence of these hussites oh,
1: i think well the, the question of whether the the hussites had direct influence later on i would say not so much i mm-hmm. mean of course within the region they were always an entity but let's say in the very broad picture less so But this combination that I'm studying of apocalyptic thought and revolutionary action, why I find it so interesting is because this is sort of the, what we take for granted in modernity, is that people, normal people, can actually have a voice and can actually enact an entire world-changing event, which is something relatively new in the history of Western thought. And into modernity, I mean, I think this this idea of revolution, of upturning an, a social order or an entire state of being and transforming it into something completely different is, is unique to modernity. And it challenges where we put the Hussites kind of on the timeline of mm-hmm. medieval modern. But there, then my broader interests are sort of revolutionary thought then into modernity. And I think that this is something, of course, that stays with us t- until today. And But also the more sort of negative part of this is interesting in that, of course, the Taborites were revolutionaries, which we kind of associate maybe positively today but i don't think any of us would want to live in their post-revolutionary world because this was an extremely normative vision where there was no space for diversion mm-hmm. there was no mm-hmm. space for heterogeneity it was a completely homogeneous view and i think this also is something in a way unique to modernity that this forced this really totalistic view of a society that is does not tolerate I would have to go into more detail to compare it to the medieval perspective, let's say the traditional, but the Augustinian perspective more or less like tolerates some sins so that the less greater sins are not mm-hmm. do not grow out of these sins, but.
0: So that's more of a balanced view. If you let out,
1: yeah, if it's like a it's like yeah. a release valve. Yes, exactly. yes. Where is th- for the Taborites, or let's say the really what I'm describing is a really totalistic vision, which has no space for a release valve. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. black and white completely, and this I think it, what we see in modernity, the more frightening side of modernity, is mm-hmm. also maybe a part of this. So. It's not so easy to label them heroic or anything like that. And it's an interesting ambiguity, which I think that is worth exploring.
0: Thanks. Sort sorry, of I, too... I don't. I don't know
1: if I answered the question, actually. You gave an answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I forgot the question by the end.
0: I think it was a comprehensive answer. So to conclude our interview, I would like to ask you about your future plans, if you have any, mm-hmm. to continue this research or to delve into new topics? But also, what do you foresee as interesting developments that can happen in this field?
1: That's a good question. So my own research future, well, I will finish my PhD soon. And uh, I'm part of this, as I already explained, this project in Prague, which uh, is a long-term project. So I'll be part of this. And um, I'm not thinking much past my PhD, to be honest. This is where my focus is. Of course, after this, if in the project I would like to... To maybe expand into the later Hussite wars when they actually become an offensive when the Hussites begin to actually export this ideology abroad uh, through literature and actually violence, and I think that's an important second part to to what I'm looking at, yeah, as for the field as a whole uh well hussite studies is is a part of it, but I think that intellectual history discourse studies, etc is important because. It's relevant for me, but I think it's also interesting to see that people we would consider actually to be completely crazy who have these crazy ideas about an apocalypse and things that are so outlandish and actually then create, then enact these atrocious acts based on this thought, you know. I mean, completely massacring populations, you know, it's too easy to say that they're crazy. And it's interesting to see the internal logic behind this. And actually, it's frightening sometimes to see how learned some of these people are. I mean, and that completely educated people are not only capable, but this is something we have to take seriously. Mm -hmm. And this, Mm -hmm. I think, also lines with today, maybe, that we cannot simply call as crazy some of the acts of extremist groups or or Mm -hmm. people it's much more important but also interesting to see an internal logic behind it also to to proper properly be able to understand it yeah
0: okay thank you and thank you for coming and answering our questions
1: thank you very much for having me